0: Hello and welcome to New Narrative's Political Agenda, a fortnightly podcast on Singapore current affairs and contemporary issues brought to you by New Narrative, a Southeast Asian platform for research, journalism, art and community organisation. I'm your host PJ Thumb and with me as always my lovely, incredibly brilliant co-host Kirsten Han. Hello. Hello, how are you Kirsten? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, as usual, we never seem to have a quiet fortnight in Singapore. <laughs> Stuff just happens. Uh, This week, we're discussing the um, efforts to repeal 377A of Singapore's Penal Code. And with us, we have three brilliantly interesting and intelligent uh, guests. First of all, Pamela Devon, a PhD candidate in sociology at Boston University who works on sexuality and gender. Hello, Pamela. Hello. Are you uh, here in Singapore uh, most of the time or are you most of the time in Boston right now?
1: I'm back in Singapore to carry on my research. Okay. But I'll be going back to Boston to teach in, in January.
0: Cool. Yeah, I love Boston. Great city. Go Red Sox! <laughs> also with us, uh, Clement Tan, Pink Dot Committee member for the past three years. Hi, Clement. Hi. Hi, everyone. So, Clement, how are you? Good. Yeah, it's been interesting times. <laughs> right, up. will And last but not least, Johannes Hardy, trainee lawyer and co-author of the Ready for Repeal Petition 2018. Hi, hi. Thanks for joining us. Uh, So just a bit of background for uh, those of you who are unfamiliar with the issue, right? As um, all of you have probably heard, uh, a short time ago, we're recording this on the 17th of September, and uh, about ten days, just over two weeks ago, just under two weeks ago, um, India's Supreme Court struck down their colonial era ban on gay sex, and calls arose in Singapore almost immediately for Singapore to do the same, especially since our laws are based on India's laws, right? Those of you who uh, were paying attention in history class or have listened to my podcast will remember that, Um, Singapore used to be governed uh, by the East India Company from Kolkata, and many of our laws are based on their colonial laws. Now, Ambassador-at-Large Tommy Koh then kind of dropped the grenade into the whole situation by commenting on a friend's Facebook page that uh, the gay community, or Singaporeans in general, should challenge the law. Um, And immediately afterward, someone then pointed out that Singaporeans had already challenged the law, to which he replied, Try again. Now, all this took place on Facebook, so apparently, Singapore politics now takes place entirely on Facebook, <laughs> um, as Kirsten and I have learned over the past couple of months. Uh, but the interesting thing was not only did someone as influential as Tommy Koh endorse a challenge of this law, but he was joined by Janadas Devon, uh, Chief of Government Communications, and uh, Ho Kwon Ping, Chairman of Banyan Tree Holdings, and also. Former journalist and political detainee. Now, of course, uh, the government's position is that it's up for society to decide, which is a bit odd, uh, given that they have very strong positions about all sorts of other issues in Singapore, especially social, cultural, political issues. And you know, say that they decide for the best, uh, you know, for um, the long-term interests in Singapore. But on this one issue, they seem to have no real position. And so, as a result of uh, the government's sort of ambivalence on this issue, competing petitions have arose to one to keep the law and one to challenge the law. And the latter, of course, is ready for repeal. And uh, Johannes is one of the co-authors, as I mentioned. Okay, so enough background and enough for me. As a a cisgender, straight, male, Chinese, English-educated person with privilege dripping out of his pores, who lives in a government-approved family arrangement? I am going to shut up now and listen to what all my fellow panelists have to say.
2: So, I think just to start off, maybe we could look at three seven seven A itself. So, the ready ready for repeal campaign. This is not the first time that it's been challenged. In two thousand and seven, there was a push to repeal three seven seven A. There was a parliamentary petition filed, and there was a. The uh, an open letter to the prime minister as well. In fact, that was actually one of the very first stories that New Narrative published when we launched was a story looking at the ten year anniversary of repeal three seven seven A and what had changed. And so now this is like round two, right? Like as Tommy says, try it again. But but what is it about three seven seven A really that's so difficult to shift? Like, what why can't Singapore get rid of it?
3: Well, I mean, I have some thoughts, but I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm also a cisgender, (laughs) straight, all all the titles that he has. Um, But I think for, so for example, I mean, just to take my own personal uh, experience, I don't think I would have been ready to step up to author this petition so publicly, um, say in 2007, partially because I was 17 years old, (laughs) but also uh, mostly because I felt like um, I hadn't, Really gotten to know that many gay people. I feel like all my gay friends were made after 2007, um, and I think it's a, it's a it's a difficult topic for most Singaporeans. Just I mean, just looking at my friends, most of my straight friends have zero gay friends, uh, and I think it's quite difficult to then uh, make that leap in their minds. I think to because you know in 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 society, the media, the signalling is always that. Uh, gay behavior is aberrant it's in some way uh, abnormal or unnatural and if they have no gay friends then I feel like it's quite difficult for them to just see what I've seen in the last 10 years which is that gay people are I mean exactly like us in all the important ways of course they're different in very special ways but I feel like it, you know in all, in all important respects they're pretty much the same and I think that's that's my journey how I came to find the level of comfort to step up publicly to say this is time for repeal. Um, But I'm not sure what, you know, everyone else's experiences are on this.
4: I mean, I think Johannes brings up a really good point about how perceptions in society about the LGBT community really only change or can change um, once people start seeing beyond the issues and also see the community as people. Um, that we're all Singaporean citizens or, well, there are non-Singaporean citizens who are LGBT and make Singapore their home as well in a different capacity. Um, But we all have the same concerns, the same issues, the same joys, sorrows, work troubles, um, family issues, relationship woes. Um, And I think from a Pink Dot perspective, what we've really tried to do for a very long time, even from its very beginning, has been to raise awareness about the community to make it visible in a, not an affronting way, but in a way that says, we are here, uh, we exist. Um, it is impossible to ignore us because we make up so much of Singapore society from the top to the bottom. We have um, been participating in civic activities. We are tax-paying members of society. We're in your schools as students. Um, we, we serve national service. You know all these other things that Singaporeans call it. You know the quintessential Singaporean experiences. We go through the same too, and probably we go through a lot more. And maybe in two thousand and seven, it was hard um, not only just for someone growing up young and therefore not being able to step up and write a petition, but I will also say that society during that time, even if you were an adult, chances are you probably didn't know a gay person, or you you, you probably knew someone then, but they went out to you. So and it was much harder for people to come out then. So I think that's kind of the shift between 2007 to now.
1: I guess there's also the fact that um, people don't necessarily think about 377A as something that affects them on a daily basis, even gay men or gay women or um, the LGBTQ community, um, that 377A is just seen as the criminalization of one particular act done uh, between uh, two particular kinds of people and that they don't necessarily acknowledge the trickle-down effect of the um, cultural and symbolic and other problems that kind of arise from 377A. And I think I was mentioning, I mentioned this earlier, this really awesome piece by Sean Fu from um, Dear Straight People, uh, where he, uh, I don't know when he posted it, but he um, talked about how even the gay men that he knows don't think that repealing 3778 is a thing that they have to worry about because they can go to clubs freely, they can hang out with their partners, they can sometimes bring their boyfriends home, and it's not an issue. Um, So even among gay people, there tends to be not so much of a focus on repealing 3778.
2: So, yeah, there's there's this kind of... Like, the government position is that, oh, you know, um, what we have now is a compromise. So we have 377A, but we don't enforce it. And it's seen as a sort of olive branch to the LGBT community. And and sometimes it feels like those people in power seem to be quite confused that it's not good enough, that there are LGBT activists who say this is not good enough, because it's kind of like, what do you want? We're we not enforcing it already, so where's the problem, you know? And, and when you have... Like our education minister, Ong Ye Kung, saying there is no discrimination. And he, and he not only just says, he not only expresses it as an opinion, right? He's like, the fact is that there is no discrimination in, in work, in housing, or in, in whatever. you know. So there's this sense that, oh, 377A, it, it only affects this small group of people, and in any case, it's not enforced, so there's no problem with 377A. But what are some of the effects of 377A?
4: you know pamela brought up this really great point about some gay men themselves feeling very apolitical apathetic Mm. about it and i do know people in my life who are like that but i have thought about it before and i and i feel that maybe in some ways it's part of um a whole generation of gay men who have seen uh, not just gay men of course the whole lgbt community who have seen political change um happen so slowly for themselves that i can almost understand it from a self-defense point of view Mm. like it's a mechanism that you internalize to not hope for change because it gets your hopes up it gets expectations up Mm. and and you know from pink dog we we have always had that perennial difficulty in trying to get a movement going to try to inspire and encourage people to aspire for something bigger and better Um, if you ask anyone in 2009 or even 2008, whether they thought something like pink dot could happen, and that they would see however many tens of thousands of people show up at Honglin Park to champion you know, the freedom to love and equality and diversity, I think a lot of people then would have said no way. Mm. The question of who does 3778 actually affect? I mean, I would say that you know, in 2007, people were either not tuned in or they themselves were straight and didn't know any gay people, so they thought they didn't care about them. I was uh, 17 or 16, I think, when the debates on 2000 and, in 2007 happened. And I remember having absolutely no interest in parliament or whatever. I had no aspirations in that field. I was pretty happy to just do my teenage thing. But then even I knew that I was gay. I hadn't come out to anyone, but I knew that I was gay. And I remember paying attention to everything that was being said in 2007. Everything that my friends were saying about the issues... Um, and so 3778 does impact people and it impacts people who you don't think about if, and, and at this point I I want to say that a lot of young people in Singapore are listening to what's going on it's a national conversation that yeah. maybe they don't feel that they can participate in but they're, they're listening very carefully and for a lot of people who are LGBT themselves because 17, 16, 15, people are realizing at a much younger, younger age that they are LGBTQ and it in, impacts them in a very deep way, there's a lot of layers of trauma i think that happens when they are told that the law uh, thinks that they're not good enough that they're unequal um that they are criminals much worse um, than that right I mean, yeah perverse yeah or when people equate them exactly with with a lot of the arguments that are, are circling around right now from people mm. who want 377a to be kept yeah, yeah.
0: If I can jump in, a new narrative ran an article called How Discrimination Kills Gay Men in Singapore. And one of the impressions I got is that the discrimination is real and it has an impact. But younger people, of course, are more resilient and able to shrug it off. So actually, it's really old gay men who are, you know, after a lifetime of discrimination, uh, who are struggling with healthcare issues, mental health issues, for example. You know, all these, um, the accumulated impact of a lifetime of discrimination. Pamela, what, what do you think? Is this Would this be accurate?
1: It's, I mean, I've been lo- talking to a lot of younger people these days, like not just like in their early 20s and their late teens, and they are amazing. I think something that they're very lucky to have is social media and that they can kind of form communities through things that I'm not entirely sure how they work, like Instagram and Telegram and other mysterious social media apps that I don't understand. But through that, they can kind of create communities and find each other. And it's not necessarily based in Singapore, so you can use, like, Tumblr to be able to find cool queer memes online Mm -hmm. and just create community, even communities that are not based in Singapore. So you can have, like, best friends in London or in South Africa or in Boston. And so, for me, the kind of younger people these days... um, I sound really old, but like the, <laughs> the youth of these days, you know, um, they definitely have kind of an advantage over the people who didn't necessarily have that kind of stuff going on when they were younger. Um, but I do think that you are right about, um, it kind of ties back to Clement's point about being tired and exhausted. And like, I didn't live, we didn't live through the, like the 1990s raids. I was a kid at that time, so it didn't necessarily affect us. But there are people who have been, you know, th- th- that um, they've been, captured by the police, there's been, like, actual raids, people have, people's lives have been uh, turned over, upturned.
3: Convicted and charged and punished. Yes.
1: And these days, it doesn't happen so much. So I think younger people think that it's not such an issue anymore because no one that they know has actually been convicted through 3778.
4: Yeah. I mean, I wasn't around when all these raids and when, you know, gay men's names were splashed on Mm. our national newspaper. Now, I wasn't around, but my parents were around. And my parents definitely sort of like were paying attention. And that's kind of how they shaped my upbringing as well. If I ever happened to transgress um, gender or sexual norms by maybe behaving in a feminine way. I mean, like things that you always say like, oh, you know, don't do this or please come catch you. You know, they would, you know, when you say that in the same breath of with with your child and then you trying to castigate them for maybe walking in a feminine way or mm-hmm. playing with dolls when they shouldn't be or... If a girl, you know, <coughs> decides that she wants to wear overalls and wants to cut hair short, sure. and these are the things that maybe if you're not so educated about the issue, this is what you these are the values you pass to your
2: children. And so let's talk a bit about repeal uh ready for repeal, this petition, this time. And how, how did it come about? How did people decide that this was the time to try again? <laughs> like did you was it automatically a reaction to the Indian Supreme Court or was it already kind of in the works?
3: Well, um, Okay, so today is Monday, 17th of September. The petition went live last Sunday, about a week ago. Uh, And really, the whole idea sort of was conceived on the Saturday before the petition went live. Uh, So how it happened was Glenn, my co-author, I mean, I woke up Saturday morning very hungover, very tired. And then Glenn was texting me, like, oh, you know, have you seen... um, this petition floating around. Uh, there are these um, uh, people who want to keep 377A, and then Glenn said, "Well, we we shouldn't do nothing." And then I said, "Yeah, we we shouldn't. You know, I mean, we could we could just start a a, a, a reply petition just to not stay silent, just to say that you know we're not gonna you know just do nothing and be quiet." The original plan was for the petition to be to go live on Monday, but then because people were so excited, and given what Tomiko had said, you know, there was a sense of uh, the community, the community being very galvanized, like sort of being uh, provoked to action. So you know, before you know, I knew it. The petition was live on Sunday night. And within the first 24 hours, I think we had 20,000 signatures. And that, of course, one thing led to another. Lie. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it felt like we were riding on a wave that I don't think anyone saw coming before we were on it. And I feel great because it feels like this has started very organically. There's almost been like a bushfire in the community and also with uh, with among straight allies. I mean, I've not seen so many of my straight friends so alive about Uh, this issue of 377A in my entire life and I find that very heartening.
2: You do see how much has changed because I remember when I was interviewing people about the 10th anniversary of repeal 377A and looking at all the stuff, uh, they sent an open letter as well as a parliamentary petition and the parliamentary petition had like 2,000 plus signatures and the open letter to Prime Minister Li Long had like 8,000 plus signatures and at the time it was like, wow, eight thousand plus. And now we are looking at ready for repeal and it's at what over forty thousand and we are like forty thousand is okay. Forty three thousand actually. <laughs>
3: you know? But actually twenty seven different now.. Yeah, so, no so like media. so much has yeah. changed,
2: right? Like the 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 social media, but also with Pink Dot, um in two thousand and seven there was no Pink Dot and now we've seen Pink Dot mm. grow to 10 years plus the declarations that were made so could you talk a bit about the declarations that pink dot made this year and why you decided to do it
4: all the declarations also came about very organically like within a committee we were talking about what we were going to do different for the 10th year you know whenever you hit a milestone you kind of want to shake up the formula a little bit you want to surprise people Um, but more importantly because we're a movement we're not like a we're not just this fun party we wanted to make sure that we kept kept that trajectory in mind. I think a lot of people don't actually realise this, but Ping Dot's origins are very much sparked off from repeal three seven seven A and what we what then people saw as, as a setback. You know, it was always, I think, going to fail. I think even people then also realised it was it was it wasn't really going to change. Um, the 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 debates that happened in Parliament were really very much trying to get the conversation on the record really then about repealing. Um, and after that, there was a very uh, tangible sense that, okay, maybe the ground isn't soft yet and the, the, the time isn't right. So there was this sense that work had to begin now before the conversation on 3778 again ever arose. Because if you want to start reaching out to people when the conversation is hot, it's never going to work. Because people feel like they're being sold this new idea. You've not taken a time to get to know your neighbors, get to know the people around you, understand where they're coming from, and also... Let them know you, know what you are like as a gay person, um, to try to dispel things like fear and ignorance, which take a long time to unlearn. If anything that we now understand about human behavior, um, it's easy and quick to get angry, to get outraged, to get defensive. It's much, much harder to get people to open their minds, to reach consensus. Um, so we knew then that the work had to begin and had to begin somehow. Ping Dot was really born from that. You know, at the beginning, people always said that, "Oh, you know, your your messaging is a bit vague. Like, what do you actually stand for? Freedom to love is very ambiguous." And over the years, we've really crystallized that message, and we've taken people along that ride. Because not all people then were used to this idea of political action, of participation, of assembly, and 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 you know, essentially what we've done in Honglin Park is legally a demonstration and we've encountered so many people along the years who have been like, I did not know, realize I was participating in a demonstration <laughs> but like, you, you are. Mm. <laughs> you know, 2016 was an indication we made people hold placards <laughs> and they were like, this sounds, this feels like a protest, I and mean, we like like, it, it is, in some ways. I mean, in the gay ways. rights
0: movement arguably is the most effective political movement in the country in the past 10 years, right? You, you guys have changed Singapore society more than the PAP or the Workers' Party or any other political party or any other political movement. It depends, it depends on how you define it. Yeah. We've never really yeah. set out with that,
4: <laughs> that goal. We've always really just to, you know, as you said, we set out with that, that aspiration to unite people. And along the way people have always surprised us so sorry just to get back to the point on on the 10 declarations we we thought that the time was right we thought that the time was right to really spell out um all these areas where we felt singapore society could be improved in very tangible ways um we, we really did a little bit of that in 2014 when we did the recommendations of uh, when there was that universal periodic review in singapore and we listed five areas that we thought Um, Singapore needed to improve on. There was censorship, Uh, I think it was access to um, healthcare and social services, it was education in schools, anti-discrimination in the workplace, and also um, registration of LGBT societies in Singapore. All of these five recommendations can be found in some form or another in our 10 declarations. Obviously in the 10 declarations we fleshed out more um, things that we could do. So it was was that. You know, Pink Dot is a movement, we're not static. We are meant to take Singapore and a portion of Singaporean society along with us as we fight for a more equal and just society.
2: And so yeah, I just wanted to pick up on how like the 10 declarations touch on all these other issues, right? Because it it would be a mistake to think of 377A as the only thing or like the one thing to get rid of and then all the problems will disappear in equality. But also that 377A does trickle down and affect a much broader base than than just gay men. So you know, Pamela, in your research, when you look at, you know, queer women in Singapore, like, how does 377A affect people who aren't gay men?
1: So I think the first thing is that uh when we think about 377A, it's not just a not just a legal thing that exists. It because it is enshrined or like I mean I'm not a legal scholar, so I don't know the words. Maybe enshrined is a totally awful word, but like it's it's kind of set up there in law. Uh, as fact as how Singaporeans are supposed to lead their lives and how that's going to be enforced by the courts um, that it seems that that kind of sets the tone for everything else so even if you think that it's okay to be gay even if you think it's okay to be trans or non-binary or queer in Singapore the law still basically says that for men it's illegal but just because it's only for gay men specifically that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone else is just like this is great, I'm fine, like because the law says I'm not illegal, therefore everything is genius and beautiful and wonderful. So we can clearly see this in the ways that, uh, how three seven seven eight trickles down in terms of, say, media censorship, of representations of queer and trans and non-binary people in media. Um, I was recently rereading and rethinking about the fact that Formula 17 was banned, uh, I'm showing my age. Uh, Formula 17 is a super cool uh, Taiwanese gay gay movie. I don't know if you have seen it. It's really amazing. You should see it (laughs) if you can get hold of it somehow. Um, I actually learned about it when I was uh, at NUS and one of the professors showed it in in, um, the lecture. And that was an amazing kind of thing to actually see gay men represented in class as a 19 year old um so there's uh, effects of media representation um health i mean this is all the stuff that ready for appeals talked about on the website um health access to health care access to health education sex education mm-hmm. and specifically for women and uh, i'm just going to include trans and non-binary like non-men non-cis men basically in this that um because society sees anything to do with gayness like gay men specifically but then that uh, that kind of Umbrellas out into the whole queer community, that the whole queer community is then caught up with the illegality of 377A. So even if it's not illegal for lesbians to have sex, uh, it is then bad, wrong. It's 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 against God. It's against law for um, two women to hold hands uh, in a romantic way. Um, so it's not just, again, gay men having sex behind closed doors, doing whatever they want behind closed doors, but it trickles down to everyone else who is affected by this just because we're all under this queer umbrella. And increasingly, um, something that I think is wonderful is that the queer umbrella is, is also increasing itself. So it's not just that we're talking about, um, I mean, often we talk about the LGBT community in Singapore, but what we really, ta- what we really mean is lesbians and gay men. Uh, and I think increasingly, um, especially in Singapore, we're starting to recognize the bisexual aspect of it, um, I'm going to give a little shout-out for the Bi Plus Collective um, that was started in March this year. Um, it's a really awesome and amazing collective, um, like a group of bisexual people coming together and talking about being bi and how it's difficult to be bi in a, a monosexual world where you're not accepted by gay people or straight people. Um, we're increasingly talking about the tea in all of this, uh, trans issues, and uh, m- and non-binary issues as well, which I think is really exciting. And hopefully in the future, we might be able to even talk about intersex issues. Um, the acronym LGBTIQ is used, um, or LGBTQI, so we can even talk about the Q and the I. Um, and so that is something that is being talked about more in Singapore. But because of the 377A law, everything under the umbrella is then uh, seen as negative and wrong and bad, and we don't get to talk about that.
3: I totally agree. I mean, uh, if, you, if, you, if you just take a look at the messaging from the people who are defending 377a who are evangelizing 377a the messaging from them is it's not just about gay men who have sex it's about family values it's about the traditional family unit being one man and one woman and i think that please keep 377a petition has a particularly uh, charming little phrase where it says uh we must keep this marriage act only men between man and woman right so you can see from the messaging that it's not just about gay men it's about these virtuous ideals premarital sex is there men you know the idea that marriage is between man and woman only this 377a is just it's just a, a symbol for the much larger undercurrent of non-acceptance of non-man and woman relationships in, in singapore
2: so there's been, like, this little video that's been circulating yeah. that we talked about earlier, and it's just kind of, like, it, it clearly for them goes beyond, like, just gay sex. They're like, oh, you know, if you repute C-10 a then there'll be same-sex marriage, then, like, Peripheria, religious yeah, blah, blah, blah. religious leaders yeah. who, like, don't want to officiate same-sex marriages be will be arrested. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah. like, soon there will be, like, no male and female toilets, and, like, it just escalates really, really quickly, and and it it's really quite, like, Fear mongering yeah, um, in, in this in this way that isn't actually reflective of these seven hundred eight, but of a greater sort of public morality, a very particular brand of public morality.
0: What what really annoys me, of course, is that it's extremely ahistorical, right? Because <laughs> Singapore has had marriage redefined mm. at least twice in our recent history. First with the Women's Charter in uh, nineteen sixty, and then in nineteen ninety six. Uh, in response to uh, the um, issues over uh, sex reassignment surgery and people who undergo sex reassignment surgery, whether they can get married, so you know we have redefined marriage, right? And we have gone through these periods, um, you know these these changes, and um, you know it, the, the society hasn't fallen apart because of it, right? Indeed, it's become the status quo. You know, traditional marriage is one man owning four women in, you know, in, in, in many Singaporean cultures. And today, we would think of that uh, as, uh, you know, it, it would be completely abhorrent to a lot of people, right? And, um, and instead, they have embraced this idea of one man and one woman. But of course, 60, 70 years ago, that would have been, you know, just one of many different kinds of marriage. So it's not... Um, you know, it's just ahistorical, and it, it's I think also part of uh, the the strength of a certain um, Western evangelical movement. I think who are pushing that agenda, which which also actually brings me to another point I want to, to make is about how this is very closely tied in with uh, Singaporean politics, right? That we tend to think of this issue as um, just this cultural one. But really, of course, the the push um, starting in the 1980s uh, to redefine um, you know Singapore society and re-engineer Singapore society it was part of the government's push towards um, remaking the society for greater economic gain, um, economic efficiency, right? Which was part of the whole raft of changes to the education system, to you know HDB. To uh, our uh, industrial policy and uh, and so this idea that society had become more efficient was part of that and then in the 1990s it was part of our whole Asian values discourse which arose as a result of the end of the Cold War and uh, suddenly all these ASEAN countries find that uh, you know communism is no longer a big issue and that the u s the West has won and so you know how do they um, how do they justify authoritarianism if there if there's no existential enemy? And so, Asian values is what arises. And so, this whole uh, attack on uh, non conforming forms of uh, social arrangements is also political and part of that, right? So, this whole you know movement to keep three seven seven eight just it just really bugs me as a historian because it's ahi- ahistorical. And it's always been wrapped up in broader political changes.
2: If you look at the ruling party's own history, the PAP's history, when they were campaigning in 1959, a lot of it was about ending polygamy. You know, it was like one man, one woman. And that was how they were appealing to their base at the time. So clearly in their own history, they had no issues redefining marriage and it wasn't a let society decide. It was like, uh, we are going to campaign on this issue and we are going to win and you're going to vote for us on this issue. And then today in 2018, when, you know, they're not even like, the young upstart party, they're actually in a position of strength. It's like, oh, no, 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 society must decide because government is in the middle and, you know, we we can't impose on anybody. And so this kind of neutral position, the government seems to claim that it's got a neutral position, but does the LGBT community actually experience it as a neutral position that the government is taking?
0: No.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, neutrality is one of those words that sound... It's so Singaporean in all of us when we write a GP essay to have like three points for pro, three points for con, then you end with like a middle ground. And like that works for some issues, but I mean for something like LGBT rights, from an LGBT perspective, it is very different to characterize it that way. Because I don't think our experiences can find that 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 you know, that even footing. Okay, and not not to say that obviously they have they are completely groundless and completely baseless. And you know, I've had conversations with people before and even though maybe the 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 facts might be wrong and you know it's an opportunity to educate, sometimes you also see that maybe underlying all of it, this fear of three seven seven A of being repealed it's not so much about history it's it's actually the future and it's not so much also about what they they have a stake in but it's it's what they are worried they might lose so again there's this sense of fear and there's a lot of ignorance still and from from an LGBT person who has experienced it day in and day out who has grown up in an environment where it was never very open who who has had the experience of coming out to people coming out to parents I mean, I I, I just don't think maybe for those people, they they really understand what it's like. So it makes me really think now as a person, my my view, whether, you know, as much as Pink Dot has done, have we also done enough? Have we really shared these human aspects of being gay in Singapore um, enough to really engender that sense of empathy? And I'm not looking for people to sign a petition, even though they probably should, but really just from a place of understanding. Can, can they understand me just like I want to try to understand them?
1: I just wanted to chime in real quick, sorry. Um, uh, uh, if we could say gender, uh, gender affirmation surgery instead of sex reassignment surgery. Mm-hmm. So to affirm gender as okay, opposed to... Sorry, um, sorry. No, 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 just putting that out there.
3: Actually, so while we're on that topic, I mean, I think PJ brought up a very interesting point, which is that in Singapore in nineteen ninety two Four or something, we amended the women's charter because a couple of years before that, there was a man by the name of Eric Hiop who had gone had undergone gender re, gender affirmation surgery, right, and then uh, tried to get married to a, a a biological female, but the High Court then ruled that you there's no in 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 the eyes of the law at least there's it's it's impossible for you to change your gender. Your gender is what you are born with at birth. So because Eric was still a woman in the eyes of the law, so two women cannot get married, therefore the marriage was a nullity. So a few years after that, we amended the Women's Charter to recognize uh, opposite-sex marriages, even though one or the two might have originally started in a a different gender. So that's, I think, just to give those of you who are listening some context, that's what happened in the early 90s.
2: Yeah, but that law, that amendment still then left the loophole that we then saw uh, oh, yeah. last year mm. when I, w- I reported on this couple because that loophole addressed, um, what have, what can happen after someone has gone for gender affirming surgery, but not before. So the couple that I reported on last year had been married before she went for affirming surgery. And then after the surgery, when she come when she came back to Singapore and she changed her IC, then all the trouble started. You know, they couldn't get their HDB flat. And then ultimately the registry of marriages just kind of struck out their marriage. And so that there, there are all these issues that really haven't had a proper kind of airing in society. We haven't really talked about it. I think even that the whole reason that this couple that I met last year were were stuck in limbo for so long was because even the state didn't really know what to do about it. They were just kind of like, this case is unprecedented. What does the law say? The law doesn't say anything. <laughs> and, oh no, what do we do? And and so there are a lot of these kind of questions about how we can make Singapore more inclusive, that we've just it probably hasn't even occurred to a lot of people yet that this was it certainly didn't occur to the state that this was an issue until they were faced with it and then they didn't know what to do. And so we we continue to grapple with all these things. I think.
3: And actually tying it back to what Clement said earlier, which is that there might be, a in Singapore now, there might be a deficit in empathy. I think the way the laws have been drafted in the past, have a, you know, I think there's a useful analog here between the way, for example, straight people might view their place in this entire conversation. I think there are two ways of looking at it. One way is... Okay, I'm as a straight person, part of the normal part of society. How do I empathize with the people who are not as normal as me? That's one way of looking at it, and I think that way of looking at it brings with it brings with it a whole host of problems because you are entrenching the us and them divide from the very beginning of the way you start thinking. Yeah, even the word normal itself exactly, can be very exactly. problematic. Exactly, exactly. But I feel like for a lot of people, they approach the project of getting more empathy from. From, from that perspective, which is how do I empathize with someone who is not normal, right? And I feel like that's problematic. It's like
2: mixing up sympathy with empathy. Yes. It's like, oh, Whereas, how do we feel yeah. so sorry for these yeah. people? You Whereas
3: know? I feel like, you know, I mean, for myself, the way I see my heterosexualness is I'm just an example of a, a bunch of different examples of how human nature and human sexuality is expressed. And I was talking to my friend the other day about how actually the Indian Supreme Court challenge was, you know, it came, it sprung from a very unique cultural uh, history and heritage, because of course in India before the, the Christian evangelicals went, they had a very strong uh, culture, a very rich culture, an understanding of human nature, and is in all its diversity. So I think the the Indian Supreme Court judgment starts off with uh, you know I am who I am, therefore take me as I am, and it expresses uh, it well rather it takes it takes this analytical view of the argument from the right to expression. Right. And so it sort of pays homage to the entire spectrum of the expression of human nature, which I think that we're quite, we're quite lacking in Singapore.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Indian Supreme Court also talks about Section 377 very specifically as this was imposed on us by colonialism, and therefore um, throwing it out is an act of decolonization in our society. And, and it was very firmly rooted in talk of rights, and like you know, LGBT Indians have just as much right to be treated equally before the law. And I feel like in Singapore, based on my observations, it doesn't seem like we are quite there. We certainly don't talk about three seven seven A as all you know. It's colonialism imposed upon us. We talk about it as, in fact, like people have talked about three seven seven A as Asian values, mm-hmm. which is absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But but also that we. We are quite slow to talk about things in terms of rights. So we talk about it in terms of you know uh, family, community, freedom, freedom to, to love, love. <laughs> yeah, and it's, we, it's we conscious, yes, yeah. yeah, and we I think and that that's probably you know that's definitely not unique to the LGBT um, movement in Singapore. A lot of the things we talk about which really should be political and about rights get depoliticized. Even like migrant workers, it's about being nice to your migrant worker and not about (laughs) employment rights. And so I think, what is it about Singapore that we don't talk about the LGBT and 377A kind of issues in terms of rights?
0: Well, I mean, Gary Rodan has done a lot of research on this, pointing out that uh, the PAP has... Uh, follow the deliberate strategy of depoliticization of politics, right? The administration of politics, um, the the making of uh, making politics illegal. So between um, you know making things um, illegal, increasing the fear around talking about politics, and also de-emphasizing the the essential political nature of all these choices, and and acting as if they are more administrative or bureaucratic or you know, choices to be made by disinterested technocrats, right? That then creates an entire environment where politics uh is excluded from it and that completely suits the ruling party.
2: So you were saying that, you know, freedom to love was a conscious thing. Was it why why was it chosen to be kind of presented that way?
4: Yeah, so I've only been in on the committee for about three years. Um so I, I wasn't there in, the, in like the meeting when people were talking about what ping dot should be what it should look like what it should sound like um, but I have also sort of like even before I joined the committee sort of analyzed ping dot and its movement um, from an academic standpoint um, and I mean this is this is kind of um discussed I think very well in Lynette Chua's book mobilizing gay Singapore but from a lot of of um, during that period of time again as, as I said like 2007 was a particularly trying time and people realized okay maybe their parts of Singapore really aren't ready for it but how do we get them ready um, strategically it was very important for us to um, speak in a language that wasn't alienating because I think rights based language in Singapore does have it's like speaking a different language to a different audience there, there are times when it is very powerful there are times when rights based language can get you exactly what you want um, it, but it has shortcomings as well and for a message like ping dot, when it's when we really want to reach out to people, there's as much an effort to get them to think about it, but also to feel it. So you know our tagline or you know our motto has always been you know touching, changing hearts and minds. You know, and the heartbeat is is really important. Um, empathy isn't something you can teach, in mm-hmm. uh, that intellectual way. Um, so yeah, that that's pretty much shaped a lot of our our initial stages. You know, but thereon after. After increasing visibility, increasing awareness about the community, then we start introducing issues. And now you have LGBT friends, you need to know what LGBT, your LGBT friends face. You know, when they were youths, they had issues with coming out, getting support from um, teachers, um, being worried about um, coming out to their family, because that brings a whole lot of risks, such as um, homelessness if they're ever kicked out, rejection. They have to think about, you know, when they start school. Uh, how open they want to be, what kind of academic interests they want to pursue, because they may be worried that people might call them out for being gay if they do, uh, you know, gender sexuality or write about LGBT issues too much, um, and they shouldn't be stopped from doing so, especially if the if their political is their personal and they want to they want to do that. Um, they have to start policing the friends that they hang out, you know, start curating their social media profiles, start leading double lives, start thinking about dating, romance, relationships, family starting. It's just all these things in a gay person's life path that maybe straight people don't think about very much.
1: I guess kind of going off of that, like, um, if we kind of deal with, the, I mean, human rights are necessary, and we have to think about that. And as PJ suggested, there are reasons as to why Singaporeans don't necessarily think in this human rights kind of... it's. Uh, way it's a more abstract uh, understanding of the world, um, but I also do want to point out, and I think we all agree on this, that human rights aren't necessarily the be all and end all of everything. So you can change the law as much as be- as you want, you can increase civil rights, you can do as much as you want, but if the enforcement is not there, then that's going to be completely useless. So you you just say we repeal three seven seven a, but that's not necessarily as Clement said going to change the hearts and minds of people. The churches are still some churches are still going to be um, against us. Um, some people are still going to think that queerness is bad, um, so it's not just necessarily to do with the law. Um, but what I think a lot of community uh, activists are not necessarily activists. I think in Singapore we don't necessarily think of ourselves as activists, but just more people who are part of the community. Um, and what a lot of people want is not actually, I mean, not that they don't want, the, not that we don't want the law to change, but that we want more um, support. We want community support. We want capacity building. We want funding. Um, we want uh, uh, the support from people to respect and treat us as humans in order to build community. And I think that's a huge part of it as well. And this is a global thing that when um, people often talk about human rights and changing the law, that often comes from gigantic funders that if you funnel money into, say, changing a certain law in a country, that funder can then say, Look at this law. I spent 50 bazillion dollars and I changed that law. Um, Whereas if you look on the ground, social activists and community people actually just want money to fund communities. They want an office. They want a place where people can gather. They want a place where um, they want money so that they can buy pens. They want a computer. They want uh, capacity building so that they can teach people how to survive in really horrible and horrifying situations. So it's not just about the legal framework As as, as much as it is on the ground, as Clement was saying just capacity building so that people can connect with each other and feel safe and not feel like they want to commit suicide because their mom told them that being gay is bad. Um, But kind of, I mean, I know this is a bit of an off-topic thingy, but um, going on the empathy-sympathy point, I just wanted to say that we often talk about um, the negative effects of being queer in Singapore. So um, when they're ready for appeal, you know, it's like the health stuff, the sex ed stuff, the school stuff, the housing stuff, um, everything that has been talked about. But one thing that I don't think we talk about enough necessarily is the pleasure and the joy of being queer. Um, not just, like, it's cool to be gay kind of thing, but that there is power in community and connection and that being gay isn't just something that we have to feel pity for. It's not like, oh, you know, you poor poor 17-year-old child, you're sad and lonely, but it's okay, we love you anyway. Um, to kind of build off of that and treat that not just as a, a problem that needs to be fixed, but something that can be that pleasure can be gained out of.
2: Actually, could you talk a bit more about that, Like about the sort of space that there is for queer people in Singapore? Like Not just physical space, but just generally the concept of space. What space is there for queer Singaporeans?
1: So, I mean, in Singapore, I guess we don't necessarily have that many queer spaces. I think the one that most people know about is Pink Dot, and that every year, uh, you know, it's like you go to Pink Dot, if you can get in, if you're a uh, PR or a Singapore citizen these days... Uh, and if you can physically even go there, if you feel okay enough to be out, uh, even though Pink Dot actually isn't for queer people, it's for everyone. And increasingly, it's a lot more like straight people at Pink Dot, which is also another criticism of the town stuff. Um, but uh, we have, um, that's the most kind of well-known queer LGBTQ space in Singapore, I think. Uh, and then there's, you know, we have those we have bars, we have um, kind of um, uh, a, libraries, churches, uh, queer friendly or gay friendly cafes, bookstores, that sort of thing that I think if you kind of know people, you know where to look for. Um, but I think increasingly, uh, online spaces are a really big thing. And that just any kind of way that queer, queer people can, help, uh, can find a way to connect with other queer people, I think, is a wonderful way of building community. And that's where the joy comes in. That's where if in any way or form you're marginalized, whether or not you're in Singapore It's just a way to find people like you and feel like you're not alone. Whether it's like sometimes I, as a person who is not a man, I identify as a woman. When I get to hang out with other women, it's kind of cool. Like, it's just nice to be able to talk about things that other people get as well. It's like, you know, like, oh, buying tampons, it's really difficult. Or, you know, like my bra doesn't fit. Um... That kind of stuff. And it's just nice to be able to connect with other people in that way. So I feel like having queer spaces in Singapore for people who are marginalized uh, is just a really, really amazing, exciting, and wonderful thing, even if we don't necessarily have physical spaces.
2: Yeah, and I just wanted to use this opportunity to bring in also the class dimension. So you know we talked about before like you know even some gay men themselves don't think repealing 377 a is that much of an issue and i suppose if you are of a certain like socioeconomic status mm-hmm. you can kind of buy your way around it because oh, you know if, if it doesn't matter to you that you need if you don't need government subsidy to buy a public housing flat because you can afford you know private property then fine you know if you can afford or if you work in a company that has really good health insurance, and you don't need to depend on like sharing um, health insurance or CPF with your partner, then that's that's <coughs> another thing. But you know, so how does this class dimension play into into LGBT issues?
1: Well, I think Joey Yen's book has been really amazing about that, and with Crazy Rich Asians coming out and all that, and we've all talked to death about this. But you know, I still want to talk more about it. <laughs> but. Um, I mean, I I feel like a lot of spaces in Singapore for queer or LGBTQI uh, people do tend to be for kind of like more well-educated people and definitely more English-speaking. And as somebody who only speaks English, I actually don't know about the non-English-speaking communities or queer communities in Singapore. I don't have access to them because I just only speak English. And that um, kind of separates us from everyone else and that's kind of a huge issue, I think, especially among the queer community, where um, research has shown, not just necessarily in Singapore, but that gay men do tend to out-earn uh, lesbians, for example. So there's a huge divide in that. And if we, we add in trans people into the mix, like that's a, a trans, uh, trans women don't necessarily mix the best with gay men because of this huge class and gender and sexual divide. Yeah,
4: I mean, that's definitely a great point. I mean, it's. We're talking around almost two separate but related issues. You know, we're talking about class as it cuts through LGBT politics in the sense where people feel that they're above it and that they can buy their way out of you know political and civil liberties uh, because fine, they've got economic rights and economic rights trump everything in Singapore. So it's fine to be unequal because you can just buy yourself a better opportunity. But then again, as Pamela had pointed out, you know, there's also this whole issue about has the LGBT community. You know, can we consult, call ourselves a community when even within ourselves, there is, number one, uh, already a divide alongside of the L and the G and the B and the T, but also within that, um, class affects them in very different ways. And then separately also, like a lot of the movement, a lot of our messaging is so anglicized. It's so, you know, um, there's, a, there's a sense maybe we are, we are talking amongst ourselves. Um, and we aren't reaching out to people who, who don't feel that same sense of a movement, who don't feel that same sense of a progress. We may even have very different aspirations. We might not know, and, and we don't know this until it's too late. You know, as, as um, maybe some people may discover as they start to have these conversations in this current climate of repeal 377A, we may find that talking to people who belong to very different socio- socioeconomic Stated, they, they actually have very different opinions, very different worldviews about 377A.
2: What do you think can be done to, to make this issue a bit more inclusive and intersectional when we talk about 377A and LGBT issues?
3: Okay, just to jump in there, uh, the Ready for Repeal petition is available in all four
2: <laughs> official <laughs> languages
3: <laughs> English, Malay, Mandarin, and Tamil. It's available on the website. Can I plug the website? Yes. The website is <laughs> www.readyfor. The number four repeal Okay,
2: so that was a commercial break. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by Bay. <laughs> yeah,
3: I think language is the, is, the, is probably the one of the one of the easiest and first few steps one should take if you want to talk about being inclusive. I mean, I think the petitions suffered from the deficit of just being English for some time until we managed to find people who would translate the petition for us, which is also a story in itself because it was not easy to find. Uh, People who are ready to translate uh, uh, the petition in certain languages, um, but yeah, so I mean, I mean, I think that although you know you, we could have the petition in four different languages, but if it doesn't reach out into those communities, then it's kind of just for show sure national education sort of look to it. Because I mean, the sense I'm getting now with the petition is that it's sort of now ended up in certain echo chambers already that. I mean, the where, they, where the petition has ended up now was sort of determined by how it started. So it just flowed down into these various caves, you know, social media caves. But I wonder whether, you know, if we had started with all four different languages, um, it would have gone to very different caves around in Singapore. Because I think that, you know, some people don't even know that this is happening. I think uh, when some of the volunteers were canvassing for signatures, some people didn't even know that there was a national conversation going on about seventy eight.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of one of the... Things about social media right and this is just speaking generally from someone who's kind of seen how social media just first began and you know maybe i would say people in my generation were early adopters of it so now it's kind of like i feel old because there are new platforms coming out and i'm like i can't be bothered to <laughs> Snapchat, use I mean, it i'm like what Snapchat's even is that cool,
3: okay. <laughs> i mean I, I, i'm not saying it's not i just don't know anything about it yeah and like
4: the thing about social media now is yeah. now because it's 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 so driven by advertising and algorithms, that there is, you know, this sense of um, atomization or alienation of people sort of like moving into spaces or creating own spaces where they feel safe. But what that eventually means is that they shut out all voices um, that disagree with them or make them feel unsafe. And not to say that that's a wrong thing to do. You know, by all means, do that. But also do be self-aware and reflective about what you're trying to do. If you are in... Um, trying to change hearts and minds if you're trying to use your personal influence or your life as a story to affect other people then you should really think very carefully about who are the people who you're reaching out to and are you just preaching to the converted are you just speaking to people who you don't need to speak to anymore and i'm just saying that because this conversation has affected me personally in a lot of ways because i thought a lot about the people in my life who i've come out to um and the Kind of stories that i've told to people how you know as a gay man sometimes you do have to negotiate with yourself what is safe to say and what isn't you know everyone makes that choice coming out is not a one-time thing it's a constant negotiation it's a constant process but in the process of doing so have i have i pushed myself enough have i only just told the people who i know are going to be okay with it and what what about the people who aren't even if they are going to reject me um or if they're going to have a problem with it that's one conversation i could not have had and for the people who are, you know, a little bit more self-assured, a little bit more stable, and they are in a position to do that without fearing for their life, liberty, and their safety, I mean, if now is not the time to do so, when is? Because now everyone is listening, right?
2: Yeah. I think to, to extend that a little bit and talk about being inclusive and such issues within the LGBT community itself. So obviously as a straight Singaporean, I approach it very much as an observer and, you know, as a journalist who interviews people. So I kind of always get it secondhand, but I've been very interested to hear more because, for example, I think in 2014, 2013, 2014, there was was the constitutional challenge Mm -hmm. against 377A, and then there is another one that's been filed. But, you know, one of the arguments in the previous challenge was that, you know, 377A is it's not equality before the law because it only applies to gay men and not lesbian women. And I, you know, once that argument was made, and it wasn't just made in court, but, you know, it's it's something that's been said about 3778 for a long time. Um, and I I often hear when I interview lesbian women that, you know, even though you might see why this argument is phrased this way from a legal point of view to, to lesbian women that I've spoken to, it's like throwing lesbian women under the bus. Yeah. And you know so it seems it seems like there's a conversation there that would be good to kind of go into a little bit
1: yeah definitely I think when people say, "Well, the law only applies to gay men, and it doesn't apply to lesbians," and that's not fair. Like, lesbians get it easier. Lesbians don't have to worry about being arrested by by the police. They don't have to worry about all the things that gay men have to worry about. And this also includes kind of, I mean, not just within 377A, but very specific issues that gay men face in Singapore that other people don't necessarily face. For example, um, I was talking to someone who is going or went through NS as a gay man, and that is something I. I mean, as a woman, I have—I mean, I have no clue what on earth that's like. I kind of don't even know what NS is like, to be honest, and I can't imagine at all going through NS being openly gay. And so, there are definitely issues that gay men face that um, the other acrony- the other letters in the LGBTQ community don't necessarily face. Um, but I think by suggesting that it's not fair that if the law only applies to gay men and doesn't apply to lesbians, that lesbians have it easier, that that kind of opens up potentially a door to then allow lesbians and other queer people to be criminalized. So, for example, in, uh, I'm pretty sure this is accurate, um, in 1995 in Sri Lanka, there was uh, a, um, a movement to kind of de- uh, to repeal their... Um, I don't really know what their article was. But basically it was to, to, to decriminalize homosexuality among gay men, but instead it backfired. So Article 365A now actually criminalizes lesbian sex as well. Um, so that sucks. Um, not, I don't think that Singap- that would happen in Singapore, but like, there's definitely a potential ramification or consequence that could happen when you kind of try to drag other um, uh, marginalized people down with you. And also I think there's a is the problematic thing to kind of pit gay and uh, gay men and lesbian women against each other because not only... I mean, that's again, the issues that uh, lesbians and gay men face are incredibly different, but it's still under, as we talked about, this kind of general umbrella of how, you know, protect the family and stuff that's kind of seen, but also it kind of ignores, again, the... Um, the L, the, um, hang on, let me get this, the BTQ and the LGBTQ and the I as well, and increasingly non binary. And that is a huge aspect when you're just like, gay men versus lesbians! And it's like everyone else just disappears completely.
2: I think when we published the research piece on how discrimination kills gay men in Singapore, we did get one very valid piece of criticism from a new narrative member mm-hmm. that it focused so much on men that it almost kind of by implication suggested that this, this doesn't happen to queer women. And, you know, in hindsight, we should have made it clearer that it, it referred to men because the researcher who wrote it researched men very specifically. So it wasn't like he was saying that it didn't happen to women, but it was just that his, his expertise and his fieldwork was done on gay men in Singapore. And so I, I think, you know, that definitely that's, that's come up before, that it's sometimes very easy to take one group's, experience as representative of a whole of, or somehow obscuring the rest and I would definitely as a straight person like to hear more about how we could work on that and also how straight allies come into play when when it's about making things more inclusive for for everyone in Singapore and how straight allies have this role to play
4: yes so i mean again pink dot has benefited so much in our growth and in our movement through allies uh it is one of those things that whenever you're trying to champion for minority rights, you know, that that victimization kind of rhetoric, it, it's never really going to have legs in the long run. You, you can only go so far as you can go, but also with your allies carrying you too. Um, and I guess I also speak from like, the perspective of a lot of people in the LGBT community what our feeling is like right now as much as it's also like energizing and it's inspired us we're also really tired mm. because it feels like it's another conversation about another issue that we care so much about and impacts us so many ways but people talk about it in ways that are so abstract frivolous and, and and it almost completely like feels as if we're being dismissed from all of our lived experiences um and allies play a fundamental role in not only being there for us, but to make up our numbers, to so also sometimes enter spaces that we may not feel safe entering. Sometimes uh, you know, because of our own kind of issues of resources, um, sometimes because of expertise and not having that. Um, for example, a lot of people who did the translations, for example, like you don't have to be LGBTQ to translate in LGBTQ. It could be something as mundane, but also critical as that. Um, but sometimes spaces may be engineered in a way where because of your minority status it automatically excludes you because you seem to be campaigning for an interest that is selfish mm. right I, and i think maybe in some ways the political sphere in singapore is almost tuned to that frequency it's a very like of course you're a woman championing for women's rights why wouldn't you so i'm just gonna dismiss you but all of a sudden it's like oh men talking about feminism how revolutionary mm. you know it's like oh i'm gonna to listen to them now you know, there's that kind of thing. that's like, oh, gay people championing for gay rights. Of course, like you just want special rights. It's like, well, no. And you get shouted down almost. But suddenly, it's like, oh, a straight person is talking about LGBT rights. Like, let's listen. How kind yeah. and like how charitable. <laughs> and I and I'm not saying that to disparage. Them. I'm just saying that it, that you 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 have to acknowledge that that is the lay of the land. You have to be to know when as an LGBT person you have to stand up and speak up for yourself. But you also have to realize sometimes when when it is your voice is amplified. And I'm not saying like overtaken or superseded, right? But I'm I'm saying that it, it it is a chorus of voices that represent the true diversity and plurality of Singapore. And you're you're championing for something that's bigger than identity politics, which I feel in this day and age, movements have tried to overcome. That you know you have to be an interdisciplinary, you have to be a intersectional kind of kind of push, and it has to encompass all people who may benefit from that movement, not just direct beneficiaries.
1: Yeah, I think that kind of works with the same in uh, for all marginalized communities, not just in Singapore. So, for example, one great example that we have is uh, migrant workers in Singapore, that migrant workers just do not have the option. The There's nothing, there's, there's no kind of route for them to kind of speak up for themselves in Singapore. And so we have really awesome people who do that kind of work in Singapore. And uh, another example, I mean, can I bring Trump up? Is that yeah. weird? <laughs> <laughs> but like, so... Um, in the us um it is difficult for say uh, marginalized or vulnerable communities in the us to be kind of speak out against trump or speak out for their own rights and lives uh, so bla- a, a, a black person a, an asian person a hispanic person isn't necessarily going to you know enter thanksgiving of a really fancy white person's house in connecticut and be like hi you know i'm i'm muslim and um do you like me will you like me like let's hang out uh, it's going to be the white people who have to kind of take that step up and enter, as and said, those spaces where marginalized people cannot do that. That happens in the US, that happens everywhere around the world. It's not something necessarily that's specific to Singapore, but I think it's something that, it's 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 a human issue that we have to stand up for people where we can. And I think that, when you were talking about intersectionality, a word that I love, and I think a lot of people increasingly, I keep saying the word increasingly, but it's true, things are changing, um, that we talk a lot about kind of this intersectional aspect of things, that uh, it's not just about Kind of, since we're on this like repeal stuff, it's not just about talking about LGBTQ rights right now. That we can kind of potentially use that to think more through, say, as we talked about, kind of class issues, uh, uh, um, um, religious issues, uh, different aspects and different kind of ways in which we're divided. That we can use that to, we can use this current uh, movement to kind of talk more about class as well, not just focus only on like gay people as this um, homogenous group of. Homogenous voting, not voting block. There's just a homogenous block that all has the same needs and wants.
4: And really, just to add on to that as well, like as much as we're also talking about like divisions, uh, I mean, one thing that's that's really been provoking me to think a lot in this week, when everyone's been talking about like, oh, you know, it's divisive and it's two sides. Like, what? I don't believe that there are two sides. Like, what happened to LGBTQ Christians? They exist, right? Like, where are they in all of this? Who's asking them what they think?
3: And actually, so, I mean, uh, early on, I think, Kirsten, you asked why, 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 why is it so hard to move society on this issue of 377A? I think it's because Singaporeans, I, we don't disagree well. We don't know how to disagree well. I mean, the, the politicians are always go on about, oh, we must seek consensus, we must <laughs> seek the, you know, but I feel like you can't even begin to, to know where in this dark room the consensus is if you can't even begin to disagree well. And I, I mean, I see that, in, I see it in the quality of the conversations, that are taking place today. I mean, like, from the from the the Pro 377A camp, it's all about the slippery slope. It's all about gay marriage. It's all about, you know, men preying on your children in, in these genderless toilets. It's about these bakers who will be thrown in jail if they refuse to bake a cake for a gay wedding. It's about churches who will be shut down if they refuse to ordain a gay pastor. You know, it's a lot about that which is not quite the, the the issue at hand here with 377a and i think also with the pro uh i mean with uh with the repeal block i feel like there's also the this tendency to equate oh it's religion or so, you know it's all the christians fault so religion is bad so uh, you know they have nothing to say to you you're christian because you're a big you're a bigger you're a homophobe blah, blah blah you're close-minded you know you have no no idea how to think for yourself because that's what religion tells you to do. So I, I mean, there is a there is a problem here because we're not we're not joining issue, and if we don't join issue, we we don't. I don't think we totally understand. I mean, on one hand, the repeal side, we don't totally understand. Doesn't totally understand the fears uh, of the other side, and I think the people on the other side don't totally understand the hopes of the repeal of the repeal block.
4: I mean, I will say also that PingDot has been open. I mean, until very recently when we couldn't have anyone who's not Singaporean or PR come, PingDot is open. And, you know, the, the people involved in PingDot are, are there, physically there, literally in daylight. Um, you know, And and we have, in multiple opportunities, also invited people who may disagree with us to come to PingDot. Mm. You know, not to stir trouble or anything, but just to see for themselves. And as far as I know, no one's really accepted an open invitation. Um So, I mean, you know, I'm not disagreeing with you here. I mean, I do agree that, yes, there is a problem in having civil conversations in Singapore take place. Um, And yes, maybe in some ways, uh, as a people, we we need to do better. Um, But it's almost saying as if that it's our fault. And it's it's really not. Um, It's not our fault because... um, why is it always the minorities have to be the one being advocates and champions to stand up for themselves, but not stand up too much, you know, there's that, that, that line that we have to balance and we have to be the ones to initiate, but then also bear the risk of things going foul, uh, and, and what are the environments that have been put in place to ensure that this conversation can go well, uh, that people can walk away still disagreeing and that the stakes are not so like high, strong and hysterical. Um, censorship today plays a huge part in, 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 in not number one perpetuating certain myths that people are fear, fearful and ignorant about but that censorship also means that we can't necessarily engage in public dialogue and engagement well because every time we want to push a message, even a very innocuous, neutral, open and close common message it, it plays into the politics of as long as one shrill voice feels offended and then it gets shut down. But sometimes we have to acknowledge that people get offended just by the mere existence of yeah. your community. Mm-hmm. And then, and then how then how, do you, how do you handle that, right? I mean, someone should someone step in to be a referee? Should someone be an umpire? Should there be a guided? Pro- I mean, it's so Singaporean of me, right? <laughs> <laughs> to, to
3: ask for a guided process.
4: No, I mean, but,
3: I, I totally agree yeah. with what you're saying, right? And it reminds me of this story. That, I mean, so the, uh, a couple of Sundays ago, my 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 family brings our dogs out to uh, like. It's called doggy parkour, okay? It's like they go to playgrounds oh and, and they God. jump around yeah. and do stunts. Okay, so it's called doggy parkour. But then we have to share spaces with members of the public. So these are public playgrounds. So there was early, early one Sunday morning, we were having doggy parkour. And then... Uh, uh, if you
4: say that, If you say that phrase one more time...
3: <laughs> I'm trying to normalise it. So it's a, it's a, a secret, uh, a secret it. sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then somebody came along and said, you know, you cannot use this space. It's meant for members of the public. My children are afraid of dogs, so you you must leave, you know. Uh, and then I suppose the trainer said, uh, no, we've checked with N-Parks. N-Parks says that, you know, we can share the space. And then before I knew it, I was watching this happen. It escalated in the matter of like five seconds to call police, call police. Okay, I call police. You wait there, I call police. I call police. You call police. You call her. you call her. in five seconds. So I feel like this is what I was talking about, which... We were not able to disagree with each other and stay in that space where it's uncomfortable and we always want to defer to I'm gonna call my daddy and my daddy's gonna come and tell you that you're wrong. So that's I mean that's what I was talking about. Yeah. It's so, wow.
4: it's so weird. It's, it's really it's, weird. And yeah. like I mean from Pingdao, we like whenever Pingdao happens, we get so many like police complaints yeah, like why, throughout why the day. Was it the I yeah, and it's just this
1: What
2: do you mean police complaints?
4: Like People will com- complain. They'll call the police and they will report things like, oh, I saw people jaywalking, or like <laughs> yeah. the rubbish bins are overflowing and uh-huh. like it's a public nuisance. And it will just like spam public authorities with, like, and I'm just thinking like they have much better things to do. They have much better things to do than to entertain like frivolous, um, okay, I find frivolous complaints maybe there are very extremely civic-minded people who are very concerned about the state of our roads and our roads mm-hmm. on that day, on that particular day yeah. at Honglin Park. But it gets to the point where I feel that there is an element here of... The law is already on my side, and I know the government is already on my side. So there's an element here of, like, these are all institutions that are public institutions that I have a stake in because I'm a member of the public, whereas you are not. And I'm going yeah. to use my, my, my privilege... Yeah. And these institutions that are that are being neutral and I'm going to use it and that's to me I don't feel that's true neutrality anymore um, and it pushes our the people who work in these institutions in a very awkward position um, should they should they not you know what is the government's line on this is this when people say that this is an easy compromise is this my uneasy compromise <laughs> mm. Uh, yeah, it's really only
3: uneasy for the for people who are directly affected by 3778. I feel like it's pretty much a walk in the park for everyone else. Yeah, which is the which is the real inequity I think.
2: Yeah, which is why when like Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long says, you know, I'm okay to live with it. It's like, it's like well, you well, you Of course don't have you to are. You yeah. <laughs> like,
3: of course, of course, you would be.
2: Like yeah. what? Yeah, and I think that that does kind of you know this this sort of like call police, call daddies of mindset does does trouble me because like just at the beginning of this uh, last week last monday in parliament the minister for communication and information said that the national library board received 11 complaints since 2014 about children's books with homosexual content and like in in eight of these cases the books were actually removed from the children's section and moved to like an adult section and i was just reading that and i was like what happened to Okay, I just won't let my child borrow that book. Like, you know, if, if you're not happy with it, you can always tell your child, like, no, no, maybe let's look at something else. Why did you have to be like, no, let's, let's remove it for everyone else? And it, particularly when these things happen, it, it, it then kind of shows to me the hypocrisy of things like, you know, the law minister saying we cannot impose beliefs on each other. We cannot impose, because clearly someone is imposing something if you don't like a book and you're yanking it for everyone else. You know, and and so, yeah, it is very troubling just to kind of see this happening. And then I do, I
4: do really want to ask them like pretty directly, face to face, like, what what about that book really offends you so much? Is it the fact that LGBT people exist? Is it just that we are in now this process of telling our own stories, even if it's not to other people, just to ourselves? Does that really create that much fear inside you? And then I want to find out. Like, why? Why do you feel feel so fearful? What kind of messages have you been receiving? What kind of stories have you been told about us? Um, yeah. I mean, to me, it's just so baffling. So
2: yeah, like, I mean, they, they pull out all these surveys, right? Like, 55% yeah. of Singaporeans are in favour of 377A. But then, again, the question is, is this even the metric on which we should make decisions about a law like this?
0: Yeah. I, yeah, 80% of Singaporeans want Dauman to be the next Prime Minister. Is he going to be our next Prime Minister then? <laughs> I mean, non-contextual numbers...
4: I mean, <coughs> yes, it's a fair point, but even one number is bad enough, I feel. I mean, we are trying to tackle misinformation. Mm-hmm. You're literally mm-hmm. taking away like, the one thing that actually could solve this problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: So by having institutions sort of capitulate again on minority interests...
3: Yeah, I mean, do we see uh, the same sort of complaints about books featuring adultery, maybe, being removed from the library? I mean, I feel like there's this is sort of selective outrage going on here. And um, I think, my, I suspect that a lot of the, the, the... Well, the backlash to this whole homosexuality thing comes from a place of fear, like we said. I think it's important to call it out for what it is. Yeah. It comes from a place of fear uh, of uh, disgust. I feel like people who don't understand or don't know anything about homosexuals feel disgusted by it and I feel like they're making a moral judgment based on that emotion and I think we should call it out for what it is because if you call it out for what it is and like you say you ask them straight out the question you ask for the answers I feel like you might find or rather that person might find that there are no real there are no real reasons for the way he's feeling he's just feeling the way he feels
1: and I think a big part of that is also to do with just complete ignorance. I mean, not, I don't mean that in a negative way, but genuinely that people do not... If you don't have enough representation in the media or education or information about this sort of thing, you genuinely don't know. And I have been in that position before where I, where I have thought things that now looking back you know, 15 years later, I'm like, why the hell did I think that horrible thing? It was because I just didn't know. And now I think I consider myself to have you know been educated and thought more about things. So Look. I... <laughs> I can look. <say> <laughs> I feel we don't sing that word. But um like just to to be educated. To and I don't mean educated in like a creepy like, you know, go to college and Mm. like, you know, like these Western values will be like
3: liberal values. Yeah, none of
1: that. I don't mean that at all. I just mean genuinely like learning about new words, learning about new people. So when I talk about education, it is not like this evil inculcation of like Mm. how Western values will creep into NUS and NTU and SUSS and you know, change you into learning about homosexuality and suddenly you're gonna be gay. It's just genuinely about learning new things and understanding them. And that happens through a. Uh you, it could happen through neutral media or neutral representation in the media but it could also be positive like just seeing ellen for some people is kind of cool mm. people might not a lot of it turns out a lot of people don't know ellen is gay mm.
4: um oh in singapore i'm sure some people might not even realize it at all because there are parts of it that just get confused. cut out oh, yeah. 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 yeah i know some people in singapore who've only watched modern family that the ones that oh. show and Char- they had no idea for example that mitch and cam were married because like their whole storylines are involved in married life they just get like Cut out.
2: I think that they did that with Glee as well, right? Yeah, so, like, yeah. Kurt and Blaine were just, like, really yes. good friends yeah. that, like, shared homework, <laughs> but, like, there was nothing nothing going on there kind of thing.
4: So, yeah, neutral, positive portrayals of people in the media. Yeah, it's a huge stumbling block. And then when, you know, first question that we asked today is, like, why does it take 3778 so long to, to, to be moved? And, and because, I mean, the, the playing field is not level. Yeah. Um um, uh, you see maybe a lot more young people going along in the movement, but because they have social media and the internet, they have ways to circumvent that kind of messaging and get the kind of thing that they want to hear about. Um, but then like my parents, for example, like they lived through the part of the change over the last decade, just like I have, but they haven't moved very much in their opinions because they don't use and consume the same media that I do. So when I first came out to them, there were so many misconceptions about what gay people are like. And I I didn't even realize... I I was I was very disbelieving. I thought I was like, is this really reality or is this fiction? Because they did everything that I thought my parents wouldn't. Because you know they're progressive in a lot of ways, but they did a thing where they were like, but you, but but you, do you like wearing women's clothes? Like, is that a thing? Like, are you? But and because the the impression of gay people were always like hairdressers or like you know. um cosmetic artists or like uh entertainers on stage so they were like but you're not really into any of those kind of things so like why are you and it was just that kind of layers of misinformation and education that they just completely just completely escaped them the whole movement just escaped them they never heard about pink dot until about like a year ago when i told them you know i'm 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 doing pink dot and you want to come and then my mom came down for the first time last year and she was like what the like, why are there so many people pinging I'm like, it's the point. We are supposed to come here and Pink. And, and she was blown away by how many people were supportive of LGBT rights. Like, mm. she had never seen it before. Like, somehow, the reporting on the mainstream press had never, like, it never made an impact on her as well. And so there are people like that.
2: Mm. You know. Well, I think today we covered quite a lot of issues about, you know, cents a and going beyond that uh, about the LGBT community and equality in Singapore. But, but what's next? You know, what do we think about... Ready for repeal? Like, how do you feel about the Ready for repeal campaign? Do you think this is the time that's going to be, you know, the end of 3778 in Singapore? Or, you know, are we preparing again for another 10 years of slog ahead for equality?
3: Um, I suppose just uh, circling back to what Clement said earlier about the early days of Pink Dot or the first repeal petition, I think there's a sense, even though, you know, it feels really exciting, it feels like we're surfing on this wave, it feels like change is coming... Um, there is this sort of almost schizophrenic sense that we even if it doesn't happen now, no matter how long it takes, the, the work that needs to be done to seed uh, and soften the ground must happen now. because I feel like um, if the problem is ignorance, if the problem is fear, if the problem really is um, I mean fear, if the problem really is fear, then it will take a long time to sort of hold people's hands, to, until they feel comfortable enough to drop what they've been holding on for so long, which is, oh, no, 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 we, 3778 is the last bastion of hope because mm-hmm. once we let this go, this whole floodgate of, you know, supposed suppose demonic activity will unleash <laughs> itself upon Singapore. So I feel like there's a lot of work to be done there. So I feel like, you know, um, there is a certain sense of circumspection that it might be a long road ahead and as Rara is, it might feel every pink dot or there is a sense that it's a long road, long road to repeal.
4: There is a sense here that people are even more impatient the last time around. It's been 10 years since then. People are just so, are, are really clamoring and hungering for, for some positive change to come out of this conversation. Whether it's repeal or not, or whether it's it's at least a more civil uh, discourse that's happening right now, that everyone actually walks away being a lot more enlightened and a lot more encouraged, both sides, compared to the last time in 2007. I I will say that in the past 10 years, um, it's not all doom and gloom. There has been many positive strides for the LGBTQ community in Singapore. Um, Even though there have been a lot of setbacks, I have seen all of us come together and overcome quite a lot. Um, I mean, it, there is a bit of a tangle and it's like, you know, three steps, or ch- ch- cha-cha rather, like, you know, three steps forward, two steps back But, um, you know, the petition has got 40,000 plus signatures now, like, back in 2007 that would have been unthinkable Again, as I said, like, if you had given the numbers of ping.10 to the people who appeared at ping.1, they would also have been blown away um, So, yes, I agree that 377a being repealed is a matter of time it's a it's a when question and not an mm-hmm. if question I um, mean yeah, but I will also say like it's a there's a how question here that this time I think is emerging in the conversation um, that people are, are, are thinking about talking about not just on the is it better in parliament or is it better in courts? You know, that, that, that is, a, is a technical question. But how are we going to actually move together as a society to see that there's equality and justice for all? If it means also really taking a deep look into the way we talk about issues in society, the way we disagree um, with each other, and the way we handle plurality, diversity. I mean, these are important existential questions, so they can't be solved overnight. But at least, I would say the LGBTQ community is advancing that in some ways.
1: Yeah, I guess, um, I mean, on the one hand, we can think about the positives of if and when um, we repeal this. Uh, we can kind of see that it's not going to be the be-all, again, I mentioned this, but it's not the be-all and end-all of everything. In the US, um, you know, there there is no criminalization of... Uh, of, of gay sex but there's also now same-sex marriage and everyone's like yeah hey like you know everyone's equal now it's gonna be amazing but i mean there is still homophobia in the same way that you see the civil rights movement and there's still issues of racism and like black lives matter like that is still a reasonable immensely important movement in the US so it's not just having these laws that are going to be repealed that everything is going to be fine but so that I feel like the law is just kind of one step in this movement so even if we repeal 3778 now we don't get that repealed there is a movement there is a, a wave there is people talk. there are people talking about this people are thinking more about this you see it. You a know, especially, well, I mean, I live in a little bubble, but like on social media, you see people actively talking about it in ways that maybe they wouldn't have done in the past. Mm-hmm. You see people kind of bringing in different parts of the queer community into this as well, uh, especially through, I think the Ready for a Peer website is amazing because it doesn't just look at gay men. It specifically says, that people you know, like the, the comments from people have pointed out that it is for all of us. It's not just for even the queer community in Singapore. It mm-hmm. is for all of us as people who live in Singapore. And that through that, not just through the repeal, but through talking about these issues, we kind of get to basically make the world, the country, the place that we live in, much more open, diverse, happy, and safe, basically.
4: Yeah, and like, overall, I see with the repeal campaign, um, what's really heartening is that there's so many people who probably wouldn't have spoken up before, but are starting to mm-hmm. speak up in their institutional or personal capacity. We've seen mm-hmm. so many influential names step forth to take a stand i think this is 2007 they would all probably wouldn't have been so vocal maybe there wasn't a platform for them to be so vocal so that's i mean that's one thing i really you know if we have to end on a positive note i will say you know things have changed things are continuing to change um and hope springs eternal
0: (laughs) (laughs) you know just going beyond lgbtqi issues i think the whole movement is very inspirational for singapore as a whole because it shows that social political genuine social political change can be affected through old-fashioned organization and you know patient coalition building and the art of uh you know this this sort of um it's it's very difficult but very um, rewarding, ultimately, um, political organization is is not lost in Singapore, right? We tend to think of Singapore as depoliticized or apolitical, but um, what the whole movement you guys have achieved over the past decade, and indeed, you know, this has been going on for multiple decades, right? And it shows we have this whole um, obsession about winning elections in Singapore, but really change also requires changing society, and that is entirely eminently possible if you're willing to put in the effort over decades to slowly shift um, minds and mindsets. So on that note, I want to thank all our contributors. Uh, Pamela, Devon. if people would like to find out more about your work, where can they uh, go?
1: Um, I suppose you could Google my name. Uh, and uh, my information is up there. I'm currently a graduate student at Boston University, and um, yeah, my academic page is up there if you want to know more about my research. If, um, so I'm currently doing research in Singapore and uh, queer organizations and queer spaces and how they affect queer women in Singapore. And so if there are people out there who are over 18, and if you identify as a woman who is attracted to other women and wouldn't mind taking an hour out of your time to chat with me, that would be lovely. You can contact me at pameladevin at gmail.com.
0: Great, thanks, Pamela. Clement, thank you. And if people want to join your movement, they want to join Pink Dot. How can they reach out?
4: Uh, well, on our website there is a contact email. Um, you know, and we get a lot of queries from people who want to do interviews, who want us to speak, but also you know people who just want to volunteer their time and effort. Um, you know, there's always ways to be a volunteer at Pink Dot itself. Uh, it's not just a LGBT thing. In fact, this year and last year, we had a lot of straight people come and volunteer. And for them, it's a really eye-opening way to see how it's organized, to get to know other volunteers who are themselves youths. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, it's not just young people who volunteer too. Um, but I think more importantly as well, if you're an ally uh, and Pink Dot has touched you in some ways, you don't really have to you know, congregate in a physical space. It may not be safe for you to do so. You may decide not to. You may not be able to do so because it's, you know, you may be uh, not able to make them, they may not be basing for whatever, you know, for whatever reason. Your personal story, sometimes people think like it doesn't matter, but actually we've found through our experience to be the most powerful thing that you can bring to the table. And affecting people around you sometimes can be the start of change. Yeah,
0: so you can be involved in that way too. Great, thanks Clement. And Johannes Hardy. Um, one more time, the website for Ready for Repeal.
3: Uh, it's ready for the number four, repeal.com.
0: Okay, and of course, thank you to uh, my wonderful and fantastic co host, Kirsten Hahn. Thank you. So, uh, for all our listeners, please do check out our show notes. We'll put a small list of LGBTQI organizations who are worth your support. And if you are a LGBTQI person out there looking for support, Uh, these organizations can help. Remember that you're not alone. We're all here for you and we're all in this together. And everyone, there's also a link to the Ready for Repeal petition in the show notes, so please do sign it. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. um, And do check out, uh, do tune in next week to New Narratives Southeast Asia Dispatches, uh, our fortnightly podcast on news interviews and perspectives on Southeast Asia. Check out our website, newnarrative.com, for more stories from Southeast Asia. And in particular, we have a lot of stories uh, telling the diversity of LGBTQI experiences across Southeast Asia. And if you really enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. So thank you very much, everyone, and see you next week.